this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today, I'm talking with Hadir Elsby about the first novel in her fantasy duology, collectively called the Alamaxa Duology. The Daughters of Izdahar, like last year's A Master of Jinn, is set in a world similar to Egypt during the time of the suffragette movement. American-Egyptian author Hadir Elsby has chosen to focus even more on social justice issues through her two main characters, rich, spoiled girl Nihal and struggling bookworm Georgina. Both have magical powers as well as an interest in women's rights, but while Georgina's poverty and traditional father make her susceptible to intimidation, Nihal has grown up feeling entitled and being allowed to express her opinions. However, when Nihal is forced into marriage and bristles at needing her husband's permission to enroll in a school to train magicians, she starts to realize that even wealth and status can't make up for the subservient status of women. Nihal and Georgiana become unlikely allies, brought together both through their politics and their proximity to Nico, Georgina's husband. Now, before Hadir starts discussing the book, she's going to do a short reading from it. In the far distance, crickets sang a crooked melody. The moon was a glittering white orb in a starless sky. Under its pale light, Melek's hair shimmered a deep velvety blue, Its sheen made Nihal want to reach out and run her hands through it. As though sensing her stare, Melek turned. Her smile was slow and small, tinted with something a little like grief. A silent understanding seemed to rise between them, communicated in tentative smiles and intense gazes. Melek was as beautiful in the shadows as she was in the light. It was the kind of haunted beauty that made Nihal's knees go weak and her heart flutter. She felt the urge to close the distance between them. Instead, Nehel cleared her throat and looked away. Your father must have loved you very much, she teased, to hire you a tutor all the way from Karatsia. He did, said Melek softly. He was a very progressive man in many ways. In others, not quite. And your mother? Melek looked away, stiffening slightly. She died when I was young. Sorry, said Nehel quietly, marveling at how much she wanted to reach out and touch Melek. With anyone else, she might have already pulled them into a playful hug or put an arm across their shoulder, but it was different with Melek, and she was not entirely certain why that was. 
Malik shook her head, smiling sadly. It was a long time ago. All she wanted was for me to marry and settle down. Is that why you were engaged twice? Malik turned to Nahel with a wry smile and corked eyebrow. Nahel shrugged sheepishly. Apparently it was in the papers. Malik laughed softly. I'm sure it was. She sighed and looked up at the moon. My first engagement was to my cousin. The match was brokered before I was even born, and he and I grew up together. By the time we were 16, we were more like siblings than anything else, and we decided to stay that way. I assume the papers didn't think to mention the separation was amicable and mutually agreed upon? Nahel shrugged again. Bastards. Malik chuckled. At university, the year before I graduated, one of my classmates went to my father to ask for my hand, and I thought, why not? He was kind, intelligent. I thought perhaps I should try to better fit in with my countrywomen, to not be such an enigma to my surroundings. So I agreed to an engagement. Nahel was listening quietly, not trusting herself to speak. When Melek paused for a long time, Nahel thought she was done with her story, but then she slowly leaned forward and turned to look directly at Nahel. I tried to fall in love with him, said Melek quietly. I really did. I thought if I could fall in love with any man, it would be him. But I couldn't. It wasn't fair to him, so I broke it off. I stopped bothering with men after that. Nahel blinked. She felt like she had just been given an important revelation, but she wasn't certain how to address it just yet, so she steered the conversation into a different territory. The paper said your family disowned you, said Nahel, echoing what Mahiteb had told her. Malak shrugged. They make it sound more dramatic than it was. My mother was dead. My father died soon after I broke off my second engagement, and... We had never been especially close with the rest of our family. They just slowly stopped speaking to me. I couldn't imagine not having any family, said Nahel, wonderingly. It must be lonely. Malak looked slightly surprised, like she hadn't considered that before. Sometimes, she said hesitantly, but I have the daughters of Izdahar. I have friends. I've made my own family. It seemed terribly sad to Nahel. She missed the company of her family nearly as much as she missed the sea. True, she hadn't seen or spoken to any of them, not even her parents and siblings since her wedding, but she comforted herself with the knowledge that they were there, that they loved her and would welcome her back whenever she returned, and they would all fall back on old patterns. She could not imagine how she would fare if she had no one. You two look cozy. Nahel and Malik broke apart. Malik tensed immediately, her shoulders rising up, her arm moving into a defensive stance, ready to weave. The words had come from a man standing just a few steps away from them, leaning casually against the railing, one hand loosely hovering over his waist, from which a kopesh dangled. He was bald but sported a full beard. With a sneer, he said, Always interesting to see Malik Mamdouh walking among us mortals. Is that why you've been following us, Ataya? asked Malik mildly, hoping for a glimpse. Nahel glanced at her in surprise. She hadn't noticed the man, Ataya, at all, and Melek had given absolutely no indication that they were being followed. Ataya laughed harshly, then straightened and began to approach them. His hand never left his kopesh. So after Hadir did her reading, I've got her live on the air now. And let's start off with that reading. Tell us a little bit about Malek and uh, her relationship with Nahal. Yeah, so at this point, Nahel and Malek are sort of on their first official date, so to speak, although neither of them has 
since neither of them is totally sure what the other one feels, right? And their relationship isn't exactly sanctioned in their world, right? In fact, like it's pretty much um, like essentially illegal, um, but they definitely are feeling a connection, which will hopefully be realized. Well, it definitely will be realized soon. Right. So they're kind of, um, I hear when Malek is speaking that she has really, even though she's a revolutionary in a lot of ways, she really tried to force herself to be straight by what I hear in this description. You know, she thought she could fall in love with a man. So I hear mm-hmm. that something yeah. pressure of society has asked of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. She's definitely um, struggled with that. And she's sort of um, like, she's very self-aware and she's very aware of her surroundings and her world. And like, she, um, she knew that this was something that was going to make her life even more difficult. Um, and so she thought, you know, let me just do my best to fit in. And then when she couldn't, she was like, you know what, I'm done. That's mm-hmm. it. I'm just going to be them And you know, just, just deal with that. Well, Nihal's one of our main characters and she's having feelings for Malek and has also admits to herself that she's had feelings before for other women, or at least noticed other women, whereas Georgina, our other narrator is straight. That's just one of their many differences, but they do have some things in common. Uh, Nico, for one, we're going to get to him later. And both our characters are weavers and feminists. And in their society, both weavers and women face discrimination. But it seems to me the discrimination is based on different assessments and evokes different emotions in people. What do you mm-hmm. think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is definitely something I wanted to be sure to write about very precisely. Um, that is, like, the intersections of injustice, the layers of privilege. And I tried to tackle this not just with weavers and women, but also, like, you know, queer women and straight women, um, poor women poor women and rich women, women who have access to certain resources and women who don't. Um, so when it comes to weavers, I think the discrimination is definitely rooted in fear and perhaps even a little jealousy. Um, but I think I think the fear is somewhat understandable in the case of weavers. Um, just because weavers are far more powerful than ordinary people. But that fear doesn't necessarily justify the subsequent treatment, especially since weavers don't really have any institutional power. They're not a ruling class. They're not a majority. Um, And then as for the discrimination that the women face, I do think fear plays a part for sure, but it's also just deeply embedded patriarchal values and genuine beliefs in what the proper nature of womanhood ought to be, um, right? So, like, people have very specific ideas of what a woman should be, how she ought to act and behave, and how she should look like. And when women don't adhere to that, those very specific frameworks, um, people get, you know, upset. They get scared and, and angry that their belief systems are being challenged. Yeah, the weavers are kind of an unknown quantity, and the society mm-hmm. has very... but society has very specific 
qualities that they assign women. You mentioned before that uh, in addition to the feminist movement, there were other things that you wanted to look at that involved discrimination. And one thing that you mentioned was access to resources. And it's certainly true that class struggle influences the interactions of Isdar's daughters among themselves. Do you think that there can be equality for women as long as there is a marked income and in educational inequality among women? Mm -hmm. I don't think there can be true equality. Um, so I think that income and educational inequality will always affect women's status and equality because women exist along various intersections of privilege and marginalization. Um, and this is something I really try to write about with as much nuance as possible um, because I personally think that there can't be any kind of true equality as long as class injustice exists. And access to education is so inextricably tied up in that. Um, for example, in, in this world, in the book, there's no um, there's no public school for women beyond grade school, something that obviously hinders someone like Georgina who can't afford tuition. Um, whereas Melek, on the other hand, who comes from a pretty wealthy family, is highly educated. Her her family paid for her to attend secondary school as well as university, and that's obviously affected her whole life and what she's able to do and the, the various resources she has. Um, and there's also a question of wealth equating to certain resources and connections. Like, Nehez doesn't worry about being arrested because she knows it'll be easy for her parents to get her out because they're rich and they're, um, they're nobles. Whereas the poorer women with no connections in the Daughters of Istahar are understandably very wary of being thrown in prison and, you know, not having anyone who's going to be able to get them out. Um, and then when it comes to, like, uh, just like the idea of, of voting rights, that's what the daughters of Isterhar are essentially fighting for. Um, like historically, voting has often been limited to landowners and um, those who are literate, which of course also ties into how freedom is inextricably linked to wealth and education, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, you mentioned how Nihal doesn't worry about being arrested because she knows that her family has connections. Uh, She's an entertaining character. She certainly doesn't worry about too much, but she's also irritatingly oblivious to how life is for others. Will she be growing and changing in the second book of the duology? Yeah, so Nehen is it's a really divisive character. I feel like there are people who absolutely love her and her headstrong personality and people who hate her and hate that she's so self-centered, uh, which I, I, you know, I, I think that's fair. Um, I do think, I think her personality like makes sense given her upbringing. She's lived an extremely sheltered life um, in a relatively small town with um, mostly just her very wealthy family for company. She also like, she doesn't really read, right? Like not even really newspapers. She's just not much of a reader. So she just, doesn't know much about much. Um, she has very strong ideals and ideas, but she doesn't really have the knowledge to back those ideals up, which can be a little insufferable. Um, coming to Alamaxa, though, she meets so many different people from different levels of society, and it opens her eyes more to the world and to the struggles other people go through and the privilege she's lived with her entire life. Like, 
um, she sees herself as a victim because she's a woman and she's been forced into this arranged marriage, which is definitely fair. Yes, she certainly endures hardships as a woman, but she also has so, so much privilege that other women don't have, which she, like, is vaguely aware of, but doesn't really acknowledge as much as she should. Um, in the second book, um, she absolutely grows out of this, or at least, well, that's what I'm trying to do, right? I'm trying to... Um, give her that, like a character arc where she grows out of this a little bit. I'm actually still working on the second book as we speak, um, and I'm trying to put Nihil through the ringer a little bit more than I have. Um, and you kind of get a hint of that at the end of this book, which I'm not going to say anything about it, I'm not going to spoil that. Um, but basically, in the second book, she is going to be in a bit of a different environment than she's used to. Um, and learning to deal with all that is hopefully going to have a very significant effect on her. Uh, you talked for a minute about the arranged marriage that Nihal is in. Uh, she's actually married to Nico, who is Georgina's lover. Uh, even Nihal, who eventually falls in love with Malik, has a brief moment of attraction to Nico. And Nico is withdrawn. Sometimes he's sullen. Occasionally he's just downright cowardly. What is it about Nico that endears him to women? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, so first, I think he's a different man to Georgina than he is to Nahez. So for Georgina, he's kind and sweet, patient, shares her very niche interests. He respects her as a person rather than thinking less of her as a woman. Um, for Nahel, I think the attraction to Nico is really just the, about the novelty, right? She's never been in a relationship before, never been in a relationship with anyone, um, and she knows the consequences of a relationship with um, with a man, like, you know, having sex with a man outside of marriage, right? So she's thinking, hey, here's my chance to experience this, no strings attached, no consequences, but someone who I can probably trust because he is, you know, like, he's a nice person right um and yeah so and he's her husband so like there's nothing really to worry about so i think she's just really into that whole idea of like let's try something new um yeah and yeah so nico um like he's interesting so some readers really really dislike him and i think that he's certainly flawed um he hates confrontation even when confrontation is necessary he's definitely a bit of a coward He's really complacent. He's this sort of like absent-minded scholar archetype in that he really dislikes engaging with politics and also just struggles to endure any personal discomfort and conflict and would much rather just like live in a library than pay attention to the real world around him. But that ultimately means he doesn't interrogate his own power and privilege. Um, so even though he means well, it, it's kind of like in the end, does it really mean much? Um, he does care very much for Georgina, and he's, he's sort of like he's just doing his best, but his best is just never, never enough. Um, and I think Georgina senses that. He's well aware of all his flaws, even if she doesn't actively think about them, um, even though uh, in the book there are a few instances where she actually gives voice to those flaws, and they have a conversation about that. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Um, and I think, finally, um, I think we just have to remember that we haven't seen Nico at his best. So when we meet him and throughout pretty much the whole time we know him, he's pretty much utterly miserable. He's in a marriage he doesn't want to be in. He feels trapped. He doesn't see a way out. He feels guilty because of what he's done to Georgina. So he's not really naturally sullen and withdrawn necessarily. I think that's just what circumstances uh, have made of him. Um, and again, you know, that's not to say that he isn't still like deeply flawed, but just that we're only seeing the worst side of him right now. I actually found Nico pretty appealing myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so too. I like him, but I know some people just like really can't stand uh, him. He seemed he seemed sweet, if a bit discombobulated yeah. sometimes. <laughs> it, yes, that's a great word, discombobulated. Yeah. So yeah, Nihal is is different. She doesn't avoid confrontation. We could say that she has a fury personality. So I was expecting I we know that she's a weaver early on. Uh and I guess she is playing with the waters, but I wasn't quite sure at first that she would be a water weaver because I always think of water as kind of a quiet peaceful element and I know that there are fire weavers I of course expected her to be a fire weaver so it's a bit of a contradiction for me was that intentional on your part so yeah I did intentionally want to subvert that whole like fire weaver equals fiery personality thing and generally I didn't necessarily want characters elemental abilities to map onto their personalities in a traditional way so I think that how we've come to apply certain elements, certain personality traits could use some interrogation. And I wanted to play around with all that. So I got really granular and I thought a lot about that idea of having a fiery personality and the etymology of that word and why quick tempered and strong personalities are associated with fire. Um, when the ocean's like right there, like for me, like I know a lot of people associate water as like a calm element. For me personally, the ocean is terrifying. <laughs> um, ever since I was a child, I've always been really, really scared of the ocean. Like I remember I would scream and cry when my parents took me to swimming lessons. I've just always been really scared of water. Um, but like, yeah, I don't know. And like the idea of like tsunamis and storms and stuff like I don't know if you've seen those pictures of lighthouses being bombarded by ocean waves or like ships you know in in storms in the middle of the ocean to me that's like so awe-inspiring and terrifying and mesmerizing and I think that anyone who could control something like that would be a force to be reckoned with so I actually do think Mihal's ability to weave water maps onto her personality although like in a non-traditional way um and similarly, like with Georgina and earth weaving, so, you know, earth elementals, you know, are traditionally associated with like being stoic, stolid, stubborn people, but that's not who Georgina is necessarily. And the way I see it, earth can also be fragile, but resilient, malleable, um, abused and exploited, um, much like Georgina herself, right? Um, so I definitely tried to think outside the box with, with that, which was really fun. Well, Nihal is quite powerful it turns out uh actually they both are more powerful than they would ever guess in the beginning and besides mm -hmm. having almost oceanic powers nihal has another power 
that she doesn't even know about at first. She's uh, a rare thing called a blood weaver. Even the normally unflappable Malak seems rattled when Nahal actually uses the blood weaving power. How come? What What is it about that that makes it special? Mm-hmm. So Malak is much more aware of history than Nahal is. So she's more familiar with how blood weaving has been utilized. I think Nahal herself can't understand why it's any different than any other kind of weaving violence. Um, but it is a, it's a very intimate intimate sort of violation, a very quiet violence. Um, I think Malik in particular is thinking of how it's used against women to subdue them, specifically in terms of assault. And so that connotation is definitely really, really unsettling. Um, and I think it's that context that makes it all the more disturbing, because if, if you don't have that context, then it doesn't seem worse than like burning someone alive, right? Um, which is what, what Nahel is thinking, right? Um, I, and I also just think blood weaving is like, it's one of those things that has become impossible to look at without that larger context for those that are aware of that context anyway. Um, just something that's become really taboo, even though on its own, you know, it may not seem like blood weaving is that much worse than other elemental abilities. So when you think of that history in that context, then it becomes um, far more disturbing. And speaking about history, your book seems especially timely now, given the recent struggles of women in contemporary Iran. Did you adjust any of the novel while these current events in Iran were unfolding? Uh, no. So I actually started uh, writing this book in May 2017 and had a final draft by 2019. So current events had only almost no influence on me at all. I think the book was um, actually sold in 2020. Um, and advanced reader copies were already out by the time everything in Iran began. Um, so my influences came almost entirely from history, um, mainly the Egyptian suffragette movement in the 1950s, uh, which were led by a woman, uh, a woman named Doria Shafiq. Um, on whom Malik is partially based. So Dorea had a very interesting and in some ways kind of tragic life, but she was instrumental in getting the vote for women in Egypt. I was also inspired by Hoda Sha'arawi, who was active in the 1920s and who's seen as sort of one of the first major leading Egyptian feminists. Um, both of them were very daring in their own ways, and they both led a lot of protests, and that was where a lot of my inspiration came from. I read a lot about these protests and the specifics of these protests and the planning of these protests and that sort of, um, I carry that all into the, the book. Uh, the Daughters of Istahar as a group actually is based on the name of a magazine that was founded by Doria Shafi, and that magazine was called Bintin Nil, which literally translates to Daughter of the Nile. And like in the book, Istahar um, is the name of their river, and it's, which is basically the Nile. So you can see like how that kind of aligns. Mm. Um, I wondered how you came up with that. I also, yeah, yeah, yeah. It literally is just like an exact alignment. Um, and I also took some inspiration from the 2011 Egyptian Revolution, and in general from the really significant police brutality that exists in Egypt. So um, in the book, the police play a pretty significant role. Um, and in Egypt, they're very omnipresent and police brutality and abuse of power is pretty much an accepted reality. And so I sort of um, took a lot 
of that and put that into the books and the way the characters sort of, you know, understand the police and deal with the police and avoid the police and worry about being arrested and whatnot. So. Yeah, you did study history, so uh, I guess it's I second nature for you to research. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm a librarian, too, so just research is just, yeah, it's in my blood. <laughs> so your novel also presents a sympathetic character. I don't want to say who, because it's a little bit of a surprise. But one of the characters decides on an abortion earlier in her life, rather than facing her father's wrath. I find it still unusual to find a reference to an intentional abortion. Uh, women have miscarriages, but usually abortion is just not mentioned as if it didn't exist. Did you feel any qualms about this personally presenting the situation? And if you didn't, did you experience pressure from the outside to delete this reference? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so no to both. <laughs> um, so I don't think I... I wanted to include abortion to prove any particular point, but just rather to show that abortion is very ordinary and necessary part of life. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's extremely rare to see references to abortion, particularly in, in genre fiction. Um, though I don't, think, I don't think I considered that when writing this. I think it just fit with this character's story and like the trajectory of her life and her situation. Um, and luckily, I didn't really encounter any sort of pressure to change this at all from anyone. And so far, I don't think I've even seen too many people comment on it, which is good. I think that's how it should Yeah, be. yeah. It's it's just a reality of life. It's a tough call a yeah, lot of women definitely. face because of their personal situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you're working on the second book right now. Um uh, is that your main project that you're engaged in? Yeah, so I'm, uh, my deadline, um, so I'm already a little behind the deadline. Um, so it's like, yeah, so I'm, I very much need to get this done. So that's pretty much like where all of my focus is going. Like I haven't been able to read or watch anything. I'm just really trying to get the second book done. Um, but I actually, um, I before writing the second book, I'd already finished um, another book that's like completely unrelated to this world. That one is a historical fantasy. Um, so that one is pretty much done. I just need to go back and edit it and then see about, you know, to, to publishers, um, but I haven't really been able to do anything with that because I'm so, so consumed by book two. So, yeah, hopefully I'm able to finish it. Well, how should your fans keep up with your work and see when things are uh, ready to be published? What's the best way? Yeah, so I am on, um, I'm on many, many social medias. Um, so I'm on Twitter, um, although I would say I'm much more active on Instagram. Um, I think if readers want to really keep up, Instagram is the way to go. So my handle there is Hadira of the Sea. Um, on Twitter, my handle is just my name, Hadira Elspai. Um, and then there's also my website, uh, HadiraElspai.com. And on the website, you can also uh, follow my blog, and you can also sign up 
uh, to subscribe to my newsletter. Well, lots of options there. Uh, we'll let you get back to your second draft, your uh, uh, your second book, and maybe maybe your fifth draft. I don't know, but uh, I don't want to hold you up any longer. <laughs> but thanks so much for being on the show, huh, dear? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for reaching out. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Egyptian-American author Hadir Elsby about the Daughters of Istihar, which is set in a world similar to Egypt during the time of the suffragette movement. Join me next month when I talk to Olivia Atwater about her romantic Regency fantasy, Half a Soul. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author.